in doubt. This is, you know, your last moments, and this is the last time you can revise your will, right? As long as you're of, of sane mind and body, right, you can revise your will until the very end. The question is, what will you bequeath your children? What will you give them? I think my, uh, my father had, not I think I know, my father had two sisters and three brothers. He, he, has a child, he has a children of five. So he had two sisters and two brothers. And last week, his eldest brother passed away, which means that was the last of his siblings to pass away. All his four siblings have passed away. He is now the only child of his parent that is alive. All my aunts and uncles have passed. And so death is in the mind of our family. And when they pass, my aunts and uncles, they have children. They divvy up their possessions to, their, to my cousins. I get nothing, by the way, because, you know, I get nothing. I'm very sad. But if you were them, eventually you will be them, right? What will you bequeath your children? Who's going to get the house? Is Kara going to get the house or is Sam going to get the house? Interesting. John is easy. Charlotte gets everything. I always tell Charlotte, right? What are you going to give them? What are you going to give to your kids? You're going to give to your kids what is best, right? The best that you have. And, and today, Jacob in his last deathbed gives his children the best. But it is very interesting what Jacob's definition of the best is. It's quite different from our definition of what best is, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today, the blessings that, God, that Jacob gives to his sons. But let's start from verse 1, right? Verse 28, he says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. What this means is this. He's, Jacob, because after he adopted Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's children, he had 12 sons, right? He had 12 sons. And the 12 sons, through these 12 sons, God is going to build a new humanity. The new humanity that belongs to God, to God, God alone. Through Jacob and his blessings, he's going to create a new humanity. A humanity that belongs to God, Right? And his 12 children are the ancestors. So the nation of Israel is divided. The nation of Israel is God's. He's God starts to build a new humanity through the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is divided into 12 tribes. And the ancestor and the founding father of each tribe are, Joseph, are Jacob's sons. Right? So Jacob had 12, children, 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's sons are the ancestors of each tribe of the new humanity that God starts in the world. Okay? It is, this is related, it is interesting, it is important to realize what this new humanity looks like. If Jacob's children are the ancestors of the new humanity, what, what do the new humanity of the people of God look like? How do you know that you are part of the new humanity in, that God created through Israel, because through Israel, Jesus Christ is born, and through Jesus Christ, the new humanity is born. How do you know, right, whether you're part of a new humanity or you're part of the old humanity? The way you know that you're part of new humanity is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. God said, I will put my law in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. Through Jacob's children, Christ is born, and through Christ, a new humanity is born. What distinguishes this new humanity from the old humanity is that God is going to put his law in their hearts. God is going to put his law in their minds, and God is going to put his law in their hearts. 
the new humanity are people who are born through the word of God, are saturated by the word of God, are changed by the word of God, are led by the word of God. The new humanity are the people who are governed by God's truth. The truth here is not just, you know, theological concepts, but the truth is the living truth. The living truth about God being in people, that is how, that is what the new humanity looks like. The living truth of God being in people. If you have the living truth of God in you, then you are a new humanity that belongs to God. If you do not have the living truth of God in you, then you belong to the old humanity. Another way of thinking about the new, about the living truth of God is, this is, is a concept called a meta-narrative. Meta-narrative is an overarching account or interpretation of events that provides a pattern or structure I can't even remember, of beliefs. So meta-narrative basically is there is an ultimate, in your mind, there is an ultimate story of what life is supposed to be. And everything in your life, you, you interpret it based upon the, 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 the narrative structure that you have in your brain. The meta narrative is you have a very um, clear, not a very clear, that you have this story in your mind, think of, of which that you know what life is about. And everything in your life, every event that happens in your life, you interpret these things through the lens of that meta narrative. I give you a silly example. Silly example number one Black Adam is coming out this Friday. Greg is very excited about Black Adam because Greg is a big fan of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Right? So we're going to go see Black Adam, right? And I know Black Adam is a DC superhero, by the way. Even before you go to the movie theater, you know exactly what the story is about. You know the narrative structure of this story, right? Black Adam, whatever his origin story, however he's born, right? He's misunderstood, right? right? Then the new enemy that won't destroy the universe comes out. Him and the he. He, reconciled, he starts to love humanity, fights the bad guy, and wins. That's the story. That's the meta-narrative of every superhero story. There can be variants of the super narrative story, superhero story, but that's a story that defines all their superhero stories. That's how you see, that's how the DC superhero folks see their story unfold. The meta-narrative is that in your mind, you have a version of reality that you think it's true. And everything that happens in your life, you interpret it through this narrative. One serious, not silly example, what one, what one serious example of a meta-narrative is I heard that Virginia the left-leaning people of Virginia want to pass a law that will criminalize parents who either don't accept their children's sexual orientation or who refuse to agree to their children's transgender medical treatment. They want to criminalize parents who oppose this. So if you don't accept that your children is gay, or if you say no to your children wanting transgender treatment, then there are people in Virginia, the lawmakers of Virginia, who want to punish you. I feel like a Fox News host, right? But, that's, but there is movement. He's never going to pass because God bless Glenn Youngkin. He's, he's, he's governor. He's never going to pass. But Canada, right? And other liberal countries are thinking about passing these laws. The reason why these lawmakers want to pass these laws is because in their minds, the meta-narrative is 
people have to be free to be who they are. And if you're preventing them from being who they are, then you're hurting them. It's a crime. That's the meta-narrative that defines their worldview. The meta-narrative that defines a Christian is that there is God, and reality is governed by the laws of God. Reality is governed by God and his laws. Human beings, though we are made in the image of God, do not want to obey these laws, the structures that God has set in place, and want to go our own way. And as a result of us not accepting and living apart from God's established structures, that causes incredible pain and destruction in the world. But God, through Christ, renews the damaged world and damaged people through the mercies of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, the ones, people who are damaged, get, get to be, are born again and are restored to sanity. That's the meta-narrative that defines a Christian. That everything that you, the way you see your life is through the lens of God, sin, and redemption. You look at everything in your life in terms of the structure, God and his structures, sin and his destructions, and Christ and his redemption. That's the overarching theme that's how you interpret everything in your life. If that is how you start to interpret everything in your life, if that is your meta-narrative, then that's the living truth that governs who you are. It's kind of a very heady thing. Do you guys understand? The example of this is this. So last week, I shared that I was in a lot of pain. And I was in a lot of pain because of my sins and the sins of the people around. Don't worry, it's not a sin that I get that can disqualify me as a pastor, right? But there was a, there's a pain that I went through because of the sins that other people have done me and my, my sins, yada, yada, yada. And there is an incredible pain that, that sin has caused. But what got me out of this pain, it is... God preaching to me through the preparation of the sermon, God reminding me of his structures, God reminding me of his presence, God reminding me of the grace of Jesus Christ. When this narrative becomes, when I start to interpret my sin and the sins of others through this narrative, I got to live again. When I'm in pain, I forgot all of the narrative structures that God has given. I, I was just so fixated on my pain. I'm so, I was just so fixated on how I was wronged. But by the mercy of God, he reminded me of the narrative structure, the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And that understanding of that redemption got me out of the pain. When you fight with your spouse, when your children disappoint you, when your church starts falling apart, when your career starts to fall apart, the what, what sustains you, what gives you hope, is this meta-narrative of the promises of God in Christ. Do you understand? People who don't have this meta-narrative, they're only focused on what is happening to them right now. And they are, they are just so fixated on their own interpretation of events, they can't get out of their confusion, they can't get out of their darkness. But for the Christian, if the living truth of the gospel defines them, then that narrative will save them in the life of pain. You guys understand what I'm trying to say? This is like Christianity PhD stuff, y'all. Right? What is the narrative that defines you? If you, if the narrative of the gospel, if God has written his narrative in your hearts and in your minds, then, you, then you're part of the new humanity. Do you understand? 
this frame is very important because this is how Jacob saw his life. Jacob saw his life through the grand narrative of the promises of God. Bad things have happened to him. Horrible things have happened to him. But what sustained him is this unwavering understanding that God is who he say he is. God is going to give what he promised he's going to give. God's going to fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. Jacob held on to the meta-narrative of God's promise. That's what sustained him. Christian, what sustains you? I know a lot of people say that they believe in the gospel, and I pray to God that they do. But the meta-narrative of the gospel, it doesn't define them. That's why Christians do crazy things. Because a lot of them, the meta-narrative of the gospel, it doesn't define them. Does it define you? You see Jacob's meta-narrative of the world by the way he blesses his children. Right? So, let's go. Jacob in his deathbed. His 12 sons are surrounding him. And he blesses them. He blesses them. The word blessing in the Old Testament comes out six times. And oftentimes the word blessing is associated with fertile land. Right? The word blessing comes, it implies a land that is fertile, land that is ripe for fruit. Because God provided rain from the heavens and water from the earth. So the idea of blessing is the fruitfulness of the land by God providing water to the land from above and from, under, from below. A land cannot be fertile unless it receives rain from God. Men cannot generate rain. Men cannot make a dry ground fertile. They can't. Right? Even though in the movie, is it The Martian? Matt Damon, you know, made a potato patch inside a space station, which is crazy, right? Unless you're Matt Damon, you can't make a, a desolate land fertile. The only way that a land can be fertile is if God provides the rain and the water from underground. That's it. Likewise. The word blessing is God making a human mind and heart fertile, but providing the word of God in the, but, but providing the word of God, the truth of God, the narrative, narrative of God in the human mind and in the human emotion. The only way that you and I can be fertile, the only way that you and I can be blessed, the only way that our psychology can be restored to normalcy, the only way that we can start hating the wrong things and loving the right things, the only way that we can truly think clearly, which is all the fruits of being, having a fertile spirit, is by God watering your mind and your emotions through the narrative of his truth. You get me, Junebug? When God blesses your heart that way, you start to live. So the blessings of God is always tied to the truth of God. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, this is what God says to Israel who are on the desert. He says, if you, Israel, obey the commandments, of, I'm sorry, this is what Moses tells Israel. He says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commands and his statutes and rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
This is what Moses is saying. They're about to go, in, go into the promised land. And when they're about to go into the promised land, Mo, this is what Moses, one of the last things Moses says to them is, is, guys, look, if you, after you go into the land of the promised land, if you walk in God's way, if you obey in God's statutes, if you delight in his commandments, then you will live, then your soul will live. And when your soul and mind starts to live, then the land that you inhabit, they will start to be fruitful and multiply. Moses is saying, please let your heart be saturated with the word of God so that your spirit can be blessed. And the fruit of your blessed spirit is the fertile ground. Moses is telling his people, the way you become blessed is for God to water your soul with his truth. Do you understand? But the, people, the problem with the people of Israel is this. They want the blessing, they wanted the material blessings of God. They wanted God to, they wanted their livestock to grow and their lands to be fertile without dwelling in the commandments of God. It's strange. Israelites, once they got into the land of Egypt, I'm sorry, the, the, the land of Canaan, they start worshiping the idol Baal. They worshiped Baal because Baal promised them a fertile land, a good crop, a good harvest, if you just bow to Baal and sacrifice to Baal, Baal will bless you. Baal is not asking you to obey his commands. Baal is not asking you to saturate your life with his truth. Baal is saying, just simply sacrifice to me, right, and acknowledge me, and I will make you fruitful. You don't have to bother with this commandment nonsense. What makes Baal so attractive to the Israelites is they think they can get the fruit of the land without having to saturate themselves with the word of God. They thought the only blessing that mattered was material prosperity. They were ignorant of the spiritual life that the commandment of God gives them. They just wanted the material blessing without having to obey or think about or meditate or dwell in God's truth. Do you understand? That's, I think, a lot of Christians today. God is promising you. I will bless you. I will make your spirit blessed. Right? I will make you live, man. I will give you a clear mind. I will give you a, a deepening of intellect. I will make you wise. I will make you love the right thing and hate what is bad for you. I will make you feel joyful and secure. I will bless your inner being if you dwell in my truth. But we're saying, like the Israelites, I don't want this type of blessing. I want the physical blessing without the spiritual blessing. I'm not knocking early morning prayer people. God bless them for their discipline. But a lot of them pray for the material blessings of life. And they have no idea with a, about the spiritual blessings that God gives them as they dwell in God's word. A lot of the pastors want the material blessing called a large number of church. without thinking about the true blessing that God will give their congregation if 
they preach the word faithfully. They want the large church. They want their own platforms. They want to be a YouTube influencer. They want their people, they want other people to click their YouTube clips about their sermons without understanding, without wanting to give true blessings to their congregation. A lot of Christians want to feel the living God, want to experience the living God in worship. They want the authentic experience of the living God in worship. Without, and they, they want that, but they don't want to dwell with God in his truth. They don't want the narrative of God to define them. They don't want the narrative of God to, to bless them. They want the immediate experience without receiving the true blessing that is found in God's word. Do you understand? What do you want, people? Do you want the immediate experience of Christianity? Do you want God to bless you, bless your endeavors in the world? Those are all fine and understandable things to ask for, I suppose. But what about your soul? What about your spirit? Being a doctor is fine. Your children going to Harvard is fine. Don't send your kids to Harvard. They're like a brainwashing factory. Don't send your kids to Harvard. By the way, I said it. Don't send your kids to Harvard. They're like just ideologically like stupid people. Send them to Hopkins. Hopkins is like, you know, they're not woke over there. Yeah, they are. Don't, like, what, what do you want for your kids? They're all fine and dandy, right? But what about your soul? What about your kids' souls? Do you want the material blessing without the true blessing, which is the spiritual blessing? This understanding of blessing, the truth of God's word that makes the heart live, that's very, it's, that's, we need to understand that in order to understand Jacob's blessings to his children. Once again, Jacob is dying. His 12 children are there. Genesis 49 is about what he says to his kids, the blessings that God gives to his kids, that Jacob gives to his kids. What type of blessing does Jacob give? Does he say, oh, Reuben, you get the house on the hill. Simon, you get the well. You know, you know, Benjamin, you get Leah's jewelry. Do you, does he, is he that petty? Does he divide up possessions? No. If you read verses, verses 1 through 27 in verse chapter 49, Jacob, the blessing that Jacob gives his children, he gives them the truth. I'll give you an example. This is the blessing that Jacob gives his eldest son, Reuben. In verse 3, this is what Jacob says. This is the blessing that Jacob gives to his eldest son, Reuben. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Fantastic. He said, Reuben, you're my boy. You're my number one. You excelled in my strength. You are my honor. You are my power. Reuben, I love you. So far, so good. Reuben said, oh, yeah, okay. What do I get? What do I get? But this is what Jacob says. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. Jacob is saying, this is the blessing Jacob gives to Reuben, his firstborn. You're my firstborn. I'm proud of you. You are my source of pride and joy. But Reuben, you get nothing. Not only you get nothing, your descendants, your lineage, they will be unstable. 
They will not amount to much. That's what it means. Turbulent as the waters means you're going, you're, you and your descendants will be unstable. You will not excel in anything. You and your children will be unstable, and you're not going to excel in anything. You're going to be basic, as the children say. That's the blessing. That's the last thing Jacob says to his firstborn, Reuben. That's the blessing. What? If you're blessing your children, shouldn't you, like, bless them with what is good? Right? If you're, if you're dying, shouldn't you say, oh, Reuben, you disappointed me, but I still love you. You still get the house. Isn't that what we think what a loving father ought to do? No. The last thing Jacob says to Reuben is, Reuben, you're going to be unstable like water. You're going to be turbulent like water. You and your descendants aren't going to excel in anything. Why? Because you have defiled your father's couch and bed. What does that mean? What did Reuben do? Reuben had a sexual affair with one of Jacob's concubines named Billa. Billa, I think, was one of Rachel's maidservants. After Rachel died, Reuben had sex with Billa, who technically belonged to his father, Jacob. I mean, if you read this a psychology of why Reuben did it, maybe they say, some people say, Reuben was fed up with the way that his mother, Leah, was always treated by his father because his father only loved Rebecca, I'm, I'm sorry, Rachel, right? And he saw that all his life. And when Rachel finally died, he wanted his father to love Leah, his mother. To make that happen, he slept with Billa. Understandably so. But regardless of the psychology, Reuben sinned against Jacob by having sex with his concubine. Because of that sin, Reuben and his future generation will never excel. They'll never be stable. This is the blessing that God, that Jacob gives to Reuben. Sounds very mean, doesn't it? Sounds very mean. But once again, let's go back to the definition of blessing. Definition of blessing is God's truth communicated to the people. From Jacob's point of view, the best thing that he could do for his son Reuben was to communicate truth about his sins, the consequences of his sins, and the effect of his sins on his future generation. The hard truth that Jacob leaves Reuben is this. Your sin was horrible, and it has consequences. And your children will suffer the consequences of your sin. That's the truth. That's the truth. The meta narrative of God is that if you follow what God created the world with certain set structures. If you go, if you disobey, if you go against the structure, there will be consequences. If Jacob said, oh, Reuben, you sin against me, you knucklehead. You hurt me, you knucklehead, but it's okay. You still get the house. Then Reuben will never really think, will never realize how horrible his sin actually was. Guys, one of the greatest blessings that God can give you and me 
is to make you see the reality of your sin and the consequences of your sin. More important than him giving you your dream job, more important than your children going to Johns Hopkins because it's not woke, more important than you landing, buying a house in McLean, more important than any physical blessing in this world is for God to reveal his, who he is and especially your sins to who you are and the consequences of your sin to who you are. That's a bigger blessing. Why? It is when you understand your sin and the consequences of your sin, then you know you deserve to die. But then you know, understand, despite the fact you deserve to die, Jesus Christ has died for you. When you truly know that you deserve to die, but yet when you truly know Christ has died for you because of your sin, and because what Christ has done for you, right, you, you are forgiven. When you come to a personal understanding of that, then you will know truly, personally, intimately, what the love of God is. You say you know the gospel, and I hope that you do. But perhaps the gospel is not the meta-narrative that defines your life. Because you're very unfamiliar with your sin. And if you're unfamiliar with your sins, you're, you're, you're unfamiliar with the grace and the love that Christ has given, shown you on the cross. And when you're unfamiliar with the grace that Christ has shown you on the cross, you're really unfamiliar with what it means to be adopted as a children of God. The greatest blessing is for you to live this life with a keen awareness that you're a child of God. You're an adopted child of God. But the only way this becomes real to you is for God to reveal sins to you. Look, I was saved when I was 19. That was what? I'm 51. Now. How many years ago is that? That's like 32 years ago? I'm good at math. From the moment I was 19 to I'm 32, God never stopped showing me my sin and the consequences of my sin. It's not like when I was 19, oh, I'm saved. I'm not going to sin anymore. And I graduated from sin. That's not true. The more I walk with him, the more keenly he reveals my sins to me. The more he keenly reveals my sin to me, the more keenly I'm aware of the grace of Jesus Christ and the fact that I'm a child of God. I grow in the personal knowledge of who he is based on my sin. If God loves you, he will continually reveal your shortcomings to you. If you're married, that's good, good, because there's nothing like a wife or a husband to reveal your shortcomings to you and your impatience to you and your unforgiving nature to you and your foolish standard to you than a spouse. All of it is used to make you understand the forgiveness of Christ and the fact that you're adopted sons of God. That's why at first what Jacob does to Reuben seemed very harsh and cruel. But in reality, that's the best thing for Reuben. Better than getting the house. You know? Your children, parents. Your, I look at the way you treat your children, and I am so envious of your children. Man, 
my parents never really paid much attention to me. That explains a lot, by the way. But you are just so taking care of your children, right? And like, you know, with their activities, with being there for their golf practice, baseball practice, soccer practice, getting COVID for them, it's fantastic what you do. You're spending money to educate them. You do your homework with them. Do you do your homework with your children? I don't know. Whatever you do, it's fantastic. And you want to provide for them, and that's a good thing. But the biggest blessing in their lives, like the biggest blessing in any human being's life, is for them to know the fact that God loves them, God forgives them, and they belong to God. And the way they come into the understanding, I think Bible reading is important. You yelling at them by reading the Bible, I guess that has its place, I suppose. But merely yelling at them to read their Bible, it doesn't give them the understanding about personal understanding about God and Christ and who they are in God. The only way that can reveal that, that to them is God himself. But the only way they will see the reality of what that looks like is if you start to bear, if you start to understand personally the forgiveness and the grace and the love that is found in Christ. When you live like that, your kids will know it's not just a theory, but it's a reality. You telling your kids to read the Bible, and yet if they don't see you live out what you proclaim to live out, you yelling at them to read the Bible will not save them. You growing in the blessing, you growing in the awareness of who Jesus Christ is, that will God will use to save them. The greatest blessing that you can give to your children is for them to understand the love of Christ. And to do that, you need to understand the love of Christ. Do you understand? So if you other blessings that Jacob gives to his sons, study it on your own first marker. So Jacob is about to die. He gives his blessings of truth to his children. And this is what he says. He says... After he gave the blessing, verse 29, then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, which basically means it's time for me to check out. I'm going to go away. I'm going to die. But the way he defines his death is he says, I am to be gathered to my people. He's saying, I'm going to my people now. And the people that he is referring to are his ancestors his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac. He says, I'm going to go with them now. I'm going to go to be with them right now. But what is important, when Jacob says, I'm going to be gathered with my people, he just doesn't mean his, his ancestors who share his blood. When Jacob defines Abraham and his father Isaac as his people, it means more than just a, just, a, just a lineage, just a physical, biological lineage. He means that Abraham and his father Isaac are his people. Because like, because like him, Abraham and Isaac were also a men of faith. Abraham and Isaac, they were men of faith because they believed what God has promised them. God has promised them, through your children, I'm going to make you into a great nation. The whole world will be blessed by you through, through your children. The whole earth will be blessed through your children. What God means is the world will be saved through your children. Because through your children, Jesus Christ will be born. Abraham, Isaac believed in that. Even though when they died, they had no idea where Christ is going to come from. They have no idea how God was going to build them. When Abraham and Isaac died, their children were not as numerous as the stars. 
when Jacob died, he had 70 children, right? 70 people came up from Egypt to, from Canaan to Egypt. When Jacob died, he had 70 people, 70 members of his family members. And despite what they saw, they still died with the faith that one day through their lineage, the earth will be saved. Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What Jesus is saying is when Abraham died, Abraham was expecting to see Jesus Christ. Abraham was looking forth towards Christ. Even though when Abraham died, his children were not as numerous as the sand of the sea, Abraham still believed that through his children, Christ will be born, and through Christ, the world will be blessed. Abraham was saved before the, before the physical appearance of Christ on the earth because Abraham saw Christ and believed in Christ 3,000 years before. Do you understand? Even though Abraham was saved, Abraham was died thousands of years before Jesus, he was still saved because he still hoped in Jesus. The meta-narrative of God's promise of salvation through his children, that defined Abraham, that defined Isaac, and that defines Jacob. Even in his deathbed, Jacob says, Right? I'm, Jacob knows that one day God is going to do wonderful things for his children. He died in faith. Likewise, that's the attitude of the Christian. One day, God will establish. We're living in the time after Christ's arrival. And since and with Christ, the kingdom of God has started to expand on the earth. earth. Since Jesus came 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God started to expand on this earth. God is calling more and more people onto himself. The kingdom of God is being built on this earth right now. It may not be completed by the time we die, but it will happen. And Christians must focus. Must, our hope is really only on that day. So even though things, of this, things in this life will fall apart at times, even though our health will deteriorate, our children will disappoint, our careers will disappoint, once we focus on the ultimate completed world that God will build, we can live in this world. One of my favorite heroes, one of my heroes, Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones, he was, at the end of his life, he was sick. Right? He was sick. But his prayer request, so you know, like when, he, when he's sick, people ask him, what is your prayer request, Dr. Jones? He says, my prayer request is this. Do not pray for healing. Do not hold me from glory. At his deathbed, he says, don't pray for me to be healed. Do not hold me back from glory. He could say this because he walked with God all his life. And a man who walks with God all his life knows for certain that God will complete the world. And Lloyd-Jones, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, hoped in the completed world to come. They were so sure of it. When you walk with God, you'll be so sure of the world to come. But what is interesting, and I'll end in a minute, even though Jacob hoped in the world to come, he gives very detailed instructions of where to be buried. He says, don't bury me here in Egypt. I'll tell you exactly where I'm, out, where I'm about to be buried. He says, bury me, right, in a cave in the, that is in the field of Mecla, the east of Memre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought, with, uh, with Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite. So he gives a very specific coordinate of where he wants to be buried, right? It's weird. So it doesn't seem to be consistent. Jacob hoped in the completed world to come, 
and yet Jacob still gave very detailed instructions of where he wanted to be buried. Why? Why does it matter if he's cremated or if he's buried in Egypt? If the world to come is all that is important, why is Jacob so fixated on where he is going to be buried here? It's because Jacob knew the land where he's going to be buried is the very land that God is going to use to build this kingdom. For Jacob, he, he, he believed the land that he was going to be buried will be the site in which God is going to expand his kingdom. For Jacob, Jacob just didn't have a physical, like a conceptual understanding of the kingdom of God. Jacob knew where he would be buried. That place will also be a place that God is going to build his kingdom. For Jacob, God's land was real and solid. Likewise, when God builds the future heaven and earth, he's going to build it on top of where we're living right now. Fairfax Station, Virginia, is not going to go away. The new kingdom and the new world will be a more complete version of the reality that we're living in, but this reality will not go away. That's why what we do on this earth matters, because this earth will not go away. God is going to build, make this world more perfectly realized, but it's still going to be this world. Therefore, yes, it's true that we live for the future, but this world also matters. What you do in this world still matters because it is this world that God is going to use to build his kingdom. More to this point during small group. But the focus summary of this is this. The meta-narrative defined Jacob and his life. The meta-narrative, the truth of God, that is so defined in his life, that affected the way he blessed his children, that affected the way he viewed his life afterwards, that affected what he thought, how, what, what his view of the world. It is this meta-narrative that needs to define you. Let's pray.